there is a very robust and rapidly growing resistance um, around the world. And so not to despair and, and mm -hmm. to, to recognize at the same time we are in this for the long haul. Um, and honestly, what we need as a society, and I suppose I come from a place of, of compassion and, and love, and I'm very, I don't like violence. And I, I know that uh, Paul will probably disagree with me about this, but I feel that the most effective means of, of at the local level of trying to work with people is to try to understand what makes them take the positions they're taking. So understand the crowd dynamic, understand when somebody has been brainwashed and try to, to help them. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. And with me today, I have a number of special guests. This is the first time we've ever been uh, literally across the world. We have a special guest from Australia. We have Gigi Foster. Gigi, welcome to our program today. Thanks very much, Barry. It's a Thank pleasure you. to talk with you. And we have also uh, Michael Baker. Michael, where are you from? Well, I'm actually from Australia. Um, and I have an American, I'm an American Australian dual citizen. Okay. And I'm living, I'm living in Thailand. Thailand. Figure, figure that one out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, Paul Fritters, uh, you're in Saudi Arabia, I understand. I am, and I have an Anglo-Dutch heritage that lived in Australia for 15 years. So that's the common denominator. Okay, great. Well, it is so awesome to have you all here with us. And with modern technology, uh, we're able to have this conversation. And what a conversation it will be. And thank you, folks, for who are watching. You will not want to miss what these people have to share. They have written a book, The COVID Panic. And if you haven't received a copy, I encourage you to look it up. You can buy it on Amazon. But um, they have also written an interesting article, one that really caught my attention, uh, yes, there we go. The COVID panic. I have I have an e version. I don't have the actual uh, uh, paper copy. So thank you so much for showing that. And we will want to make sure that we have that information at the bottom of your screen, uh, so that you can just do a quick click and uh, be able to buy that book. We are coming together today because we want to talk about the situation that we find ourselves literally across the world. Uh, for those of you who are in Canada, you know the situation we have here with what's happening with uh, the vaccine mandates still in force. We have a situation in this country where unvaccinated are unable to fly, go by train or take a ferry anywhere in this country because uh, they are unvaccinated. And of course, we already know what the prime minister thinks of the unvaccinated as misogynist, um, anti-science, uh, racist. and he asked the question, how do we deal with these people? And that's quite something for uh, a leader of a country to say. But these people who are with us here today, who are scholars, who are economists, who have looked at this situation and have come out with a very different uh, opinion than our own prime minister on the state of affairs. And uh, so I want to welcome each of you here. And I'm wondering if each of you could um, share with our listeners who you are and your background, and uh, then we want to get into some interesting discussions about this entire COVID panic. I suppose I'm, I'm sort of the most common denominator being physically in Australia. So um, I am a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales, and I have been here since 2009, came to Australia uh, even before then. 
and really was in a very fortunate position at the start of 2020 that I had already been studying uh, very much in collaboration with Paul Friders, in fact, some of the elements and aspects of, um, of economics and human societies and sort of behavioral economics that are very relevant to understand if you want to know what's happening during COVID, to make sense of it. And so I basically just feel very privileged and lucky to have already been studying things like power and loyalty and group networks and group dynamics. So I was kind of primed to be able to make sense of what was happening during the COVID period. And I certainly wouldn't have chosen, uh, you know, what's happened, uh, but it has been an amazing experience as a social scientist to be able to witness it because it's given us, uh, you know, observations that I just have had not had in my lifetime, particularly on things like crowds and 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 the psychology of crowds and the impact of some of the uh, changes that we've seen even leading up to COVID in the dynamics of power and concentration of industries and globalization. So it's been just an amazing period, but of course also an absolutely tragic and, and horrific period to live through. And, uh, and I'm very grateful that the Brownstone Institute uh, decided to take up our book and we'll get into the story of that, I'm sure, later in the podcast. Wonderful, thank you. Okay, Michael. Oh, uh, look, I'll be, I'll be a little bit briefer than that because I'm the, I'm the odd one out of the three here. I'm not the academic, um, I'm more of the journalist in this whole project. So um, as you're probably aware, academics are not always the best at communicating their ideas to the general public. And I think it was really important in this, in this instance that this was not an academic work. So um, I, as a, I do have an economics background, but it's been commercial property consulting, actually. So I'm kind of coming from the dark side of the economics profession as a, as a uh, practitioner and working, have, having clients who are actually some of the people who maybe came in for some criticism in the book itself. But really my role was to uh, ask questions, make sure that the uh, ideas were communicated in a way that were readable, mm. accessible for a general audience. Okay, Paul. Hello, Barry. Um, I'm Professor Paul Freitas. I've uh, sort of been an academic and an economist in various roles, including a health economist. But I think most relevantly, the five, six years before, I was a professor of economics at the LSE, the London School of Economics in London, and developing and then institutionalizing in the UK uh, a cost-benefit methodology for well-being, which is exactly for this kind of problem that we face, namely what are you know, roughly speaking, the various costs and the various benefits of doing a whole society-wide intervention like lockdowns, like stay-at-home orders, uh, like forced vaccination. Uh, and is that worth it? Is that worth a bang for the buck? And that, that requires a, sort of an overview of many different parts of life. Uh, the health side, of course, but also the economic side, also the social side, uh, the happiness effects of preventing people from getting married, preventing people from using IVF services. And so you sort of need a whole of society view, which is particularly what economists are good at. So um, that is also what we sort of bring to the table over and above medics who are often busy with a particular disease or a particular patient, but don't necessarily see the damage of what they propose to the rest of society, including the health damage. So there's sort of a single focus illusion uh, within many medics uh, and economists in that sense are exactly the kind of advisors to society for what the overall picture is. It's been one crazy ride, that's for sure. Oh, in incredible. I just want to say that it was your book that 
and and I don't don't even know how I got onto it, but um, soon after it was published, I I came across it, and I was like, it's kind of like you're looking around society, and you're saying, is is um, is everyone on Prozac, or is it just me? You know, it's just like like the whole place is gone bananas, <laughs> and I'm trying to make sense of it. And then I came across your book, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not so crazy after all. And uh, that then got me into the Brownstone Institute, which allowed me to also uh, keep track of uh, the various great articles that Jeffrey Tucker was in involved with. It was just so awesome to be able to find a place where people were, were actually, you know, looking at this from the big picture and not so narrow focus. And, and the way the, the governments have, have responded in this has been something that uh, you'd read out of a sci-fi kind of uh, situation. Well, it was 1984, right? I mean, it's it's uh, Orwellian beyond. So tell me, how did you come together to say, okay, this is it. We've got to put this book together. And by the way, let me compliment you. And for those of you who haven't read the book, it is very accessible, as was mentioned. But one of the things I thought was really neat is that you have three main characters there. And uh, maybe you can explain how that came about. But that was that to me just really makes it accessible for sure. But how did it come about? So maybe I'll take that one on. Um, so back in March uh, and April of 2020, um, Paul and I particularly were uh, sort of sanity checking ourselves against each other and against any other friends who would listen, uh, including Michael, and trying to work out exactly as you were saying, you know, who's going crazy here, us or the rest of the world. And and Paul very quickly started, in fact, it was in mid-March, I think, that he started blogging. Um, Jeffrey Tucker had started blogging about the issues as well, I think even the previous month. And, and I was speaking out in, in various events here and, and in my radio program. I have a, a national radio program here in Australia. And uh, so we were saying these things, but we were getting this immense, massive amount of pushback and, and flack for saying them. And I suppose over the next, you know, the ensuing several months, I kept waiting naively for the Australian government to come out with a cost benefit analysis that justified their draconian policies. And it just wasn't coming out. It wasn't coming out. It wasn't coming out. And I, first of all, miscalculated on how long the fear would last, how, how long we would be in this state of madness, because I had not understood crowd dynamics um, as, I, as I really should have, I suppose, but we'd never encountered them uh, as such in mm. our lifetimes. And so I guess I forgive myself a bit for that. But, you know, I should have been a better student of history, perhaps, um, to be able to predict that. But I didn't. And so finally, in August, um, with Paul's help on the, on the guidance of it, using his well-being methodology that he had just developed at the end of 2019, um, I constructed this four-page sort of proof of concept cost-benefit analysis of lockdown policies here in Australia and presented it to the Victorian Parliament, one of our states here, Victoria. And, you know, I was hoping it would go somewhere, but it, it really kind of didn't. But, it, you know, the testimony is still on the website. But, you know, there was just so it was so difficult to get any traction. And I think it was around that time, maybe September, October of 2020, that Paul and I just said to each other, look, we, we've got to write this up. He, he had so much blog material. I'd been talking about it and writing about it and, and you know, putting it on the airwaves here. Um, and we just felt the alternative viewpoint needed to be written down for the historical record and, and, and really to help people like yourself and uh, others who just 
felt very confused by what was happening and and wanted to you know were looking or felt like they were a stranger in a strange land basically and mm-hmm. they, they needed some sort of way to to understand it and and to think that something else was possible so we expressly wanted to have a bit of focus on what we can do next to recover so that's why the the subtitle so it's a great the great covid panic what happened why and what to do next so it isn't just a, a takedown of or a you know deconstruction of what actually happened but also some degree of guidance and, and forward-looking uh you know activities that we could put our efforts to to try to recover from this mess and the reason to bring on michael was that paul and i had previously written uh, a treatise together called an economic theory of greed love groups and networks which is has about as grandiose as the title sounds in terms of its ambitions and uh, it was reasonably inaccessible, I would say, to the modern, you know, sort of guy in the street. And we thought it was great, you know, but um, it was just not really accessible. So we knew that, you know, in order to really crack into this, uh, the market that we wanted, which was not just academic economists or academics full stop. It was really anyone who had a critical mind and, you know, was interested in, in uh, understanding what was happening. We needed to have a better exposition than, than we'd, a more accessible exposition than we had brought to our previous work together. And Michael seemed the perfect person. He was a great writer, lots of experience in the trenches, actually dealing with people, business people. He knew what they would want to hear, what would resonate with them. And he also had at his fingertips a lot of interesting stories about business people and knew how to find that information. Uh, you know, and we're in our ivory towers. We don't really have that. So then the final thing, I guess, is just about your question of, uh, you know, how did we decide on the three characters? And I can remember having a, a Skype call with Paul in probably it was about October or November out on my porch. And and he was like, you know, thinking we need to have like characters or something mm. like a device like that. Do you think it would work? You know, and, and we were bandying about this thing and he had written a previous book uh, that was a, basically a documentation of corruption in Australia where he had used a couple characters. One was named, I think what Bruce was it? And, or James, uh, Bruce and um, somebody else. And, and it seems to work for that book. And that book as well was targeted to the everyday Australian who wanted to understand corruption in his society. And so they had two characters, one of whom was kind of the exploiter and the other was the exploit head. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and so based on that experience, I think, you know, he thought, well, maybe you could work. And so we, we bandied about how many characters should it be? What are the, what are the actual archetypes going to be like? And, uh, and then it sort of seemed to, to slot in, particularly given the book is a lot of threesomes, right? We've got, Mm -hmm. we've got, Paul and myself and Michael, we've got three stages of the great COVID panic, uh, which we may get into. We've got the three characters. We've got three types of countries. Um, three of our children even feature in the book in different ways. So, you know, it's a lot of a lot of uh, threes, you know, triumvirates uh, going on in the book. It's um, very well done. And I, I want to congratulate all of you for a job well done on this because it really helps us um for those of us who are looking, trying to understand what on earth is, uh, we've been experiencing, um, it, it really helps. Okay, so let's get into this idea of, okay, so what's happened, why, and what's next? I like that. Uh, let's stick with the threes, and uh, we'll have some other questions as we move along. So uh, who, who would like to go next, Paul or Michael? I think that's Paul's. Okay, Paul. (laughs) What happened, I I think the the crucial insights we came to sort of within 2020 was that we were probably looking at a panic, right? We we dubbed with the idea that this was all planned in 2018, 2019, and 
Of course, uh, afterwards, no matter what kind of craziness happens, there's always somebody who says they planned it, and then there are a hundred others who say, look, that evil genius has planned it, but we didn't really see much evidence for a plan. We just saw a, a, a lot of opportunism. We saw a lot of abuse of a situation by lots of people who were either hiding stuff or they were propagating stuff. So we, we thought a panic went around the world um, via social media, particularly kind of this huge emotional wave. And we could see this in our own circumstances. I was lecturing then at that time in London with LSE. And from one week to the next, my students turned, uh, as it were, into a pumpkin, right? So they were critical. They knew that the risk weren't very big. They knew about the age gradient. And they knew that uh, this thing would, uh, would, would go pandemic and go endemic at some point in time, just like many other respiratory illnesses, and there'd be life after that. We shouldn't take it too seriously. And a week later, they, they were sort of mad, right? They were sort of like, oh, no, we must lock down society. And when you try to have a rational conversation with them, well, why? What, what do you expect that to be good? What would the, what would the cost be of that? They, they were sort of bewildered, right? They were already, they'd already turned mad, as it were. So that's, that's a, a panic reaction that the world had. And we don't really see a clear culprit for that. You might say social media itself is a culprit for that. You might say that, that there were um, particular groups of academics and maybe the WHO, which were sort of fanning on the panic. But it was also a very human thing. And it went through all kinds of societies. So it went through the West. Before it went through the West, it went subsequently conquered North America, South America, India, Africa. And so there's not really a cultural explanation for it. It's just humanity, right? We are prone to sort of uh, become panicked uh, if we notice that everybody around us uh, has sort of become very fearful of something. So it was kind of like a stampede. That's really what happened. And then there was the abuse of these stampedes, right? So politicians sniff more power. Medics sniff the opportunity to boss everybody around. The vaccine companies decided, oh, we can make billions on this. People started pushing masks. People started pushing, ah, let's keep everybody at home so we can supply them with our internet stores and hence lobby against uh, actual stores. And there was all kinds of opportunism that then happened. Right? And then there was the question of, okay, given this opportunism and given, as it were, the, uh, the coalition of interest that gelled, around a continuation of this madness because they were effectively making money out of it uh, or at least greater political power, what can we do in the future? Uh, and so there are several ideas we discuss. One is that you should almost see the social media as a weather system and a weather system that can give rise to storms of panic. Uh, and so you'd like to have something that sort of shortcuts those panics. And how to do that is not so easy, but it's clear that you'd have to do that in the media space. You'd have to do that very early on with governments who would then hopefully um, be more minded towards uh, reducing panics rather than riding them. And of course, you, you'd like to have a bit of justice for all the negative things that have been done, right? The, mm -hmm. the best way to avoid bad behavior in the future is to punish bad behavior in the past, because the past, of course, the last two years have been bad behavior by politicians. They have broken public health rules of the preceding 50 years. Uh, they have instituted society-wide experiments without having a good idea that the uh, the cure um, was better than the, uh, the than what uh, sort of was lost, um, and that in principle violates Nuremberg codes. And so there should be justice for that, right? That that was against the pandemic plans that were there. That was against WHO advice in 2019. So in a way, that was not just uh, dumb, but was also immoral and we suspect illegal. 
And then there's a third thing, which is that, you know, our societies have shown that it's easy for vested interests to abuse us with propaganda and with nonsense pushed around in our media. And so the question is, can we rebuild our institutions to some degree uh, to, to make them more robust, to have more points of view everywhere in the system, rather than this what we call monoculture, that everybody has the same opinion, that you don't hear anything else. And one of our ideas for that is to use citizen juries, so to have citizen juries who would, for instance, in Canada, uh, appoint the top of the broadcasting corporation, the top of the statistical organization, the top of the ministries, one jury, one top position. And the idea is that breaks the link between Trudeau and those appointments, between you know the miners and other vested interests, which I know are very strong in Canada, and those positions. So you, you sort of get back a, a civil society-focused layer of public servants. Now, we can talk a lot more, but that's in a nutshell are the main elements of our book. Over the years, I've been very interested in bubbles in the stock market or, uh, you know, uh, I think of the tulip uh, mania. I think of, uh, you know, the East, uh, what was it, East Asia Company or what? Uh, in uh, English history, there was a big panic at the time that even John Newton or um, Isaac Newton got involved in. And it's like... And to be honest with you, I got involved in the um, in the craze of uh, investing in stocks uh, with, you know, technology and all the rest of it. And and we all came through a um, a horrendous experience in 2000 and then in 2008 and all the rest on the market. So it's always been fascinating with uh, for me as I've looked at history, if I experienced it myself getting caught up in the crowd, I remember one time going to a political rally with someone who was a leader of a party that I didn't even agree with. Um, and everyone got up, started clapping, and I got up clapping too. And I, I remember thinking, what on earth am I doing? I don't even agree with this guy. And, and I actually got up and I clapped with everyone else. And uh, I remember um, one time my, my mother, we went to a hockey game out in Alberta, and uh, she's she always was uh, she had uh, three boys and a, a daughter, but uh, the three boys in particular, uh, we were hockey nuts and we still are. And we were so we uh, went to the stadium. My mother never went to a hockey game in her life. She never watched a hockey game in her life. But when Wayne Gretzky scored and the entire place erupted, let me tell you, she was up and she was just going, she says, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and it's kind of like that kind of sense. It's like this this massive panic went through and families have been split up as People who are the dissenters are cast aside. But here's another thing then. Uh, it seems that, um, and I'd be interested to have your views on this, but it seems to me that when I look at government and how they have basically purged from the bureaucratic uh, uh, levels, all those who were dissenting and are unvaccinated and I wonder if we could ever get back to the place where we would have the opportunity for people to be able to even have within the institutions those who would be willing to stand up to something they see that is wrong. In other words, there'd be a voice of opposition, whereas now mm. it seems like they have purged 
the bureaucracy. They've purged the major corporations uh, of anybody who would say anything uh, that would be against the narrative. And is that not a problem that we have got to address somehow? I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why none of us is expecting we're going to emerge from this crisis quickly, um, because indeed what you're finding around the world, including here in Australia, but I know also in the U.S. and Canada, is that those dissident thinkers who have been kicked out of their various positions are starting to form new networks and new institutions, new organizations, new structures to provide the goods and services that basically the existing institutions have proven unable to do because they're so heavily corrupted. Um, we've called on, on previous podcasts that Paul and I have been interviewed on for the disbanding of, of certain scientific journals, which have just you know betrayed their, their mission, their scientific mission during this period. Um, and, and really, once an institution gets too sullied and too tainted with their with its, you know, hideous decisions during a period like this, it's kind of beyond saving. And so I do expect that we'll continue to see more of that, um, more new institutions, more new ways of doing things. And so in some sense, that's a that's a, a place of joy that we can go to is to recognize, look, there'll be a rebirth, um, a bit of a of a new, new renaissance um, of, of people finding each other from, you know, places that they would never have otherwise been, you know, across the world. I now have a resistance network with people I would never have met had it not been for COVID. Um, and, and the people you find indeed are those who, as you were describing when you were, you know, talking about your experiences at the hockey game and whatnot, they can reflect on their own behavior. They may themselves be group animals at some level. We all are. But there's an element of being able to take yourself out of the group situation and examine it and sort of almost have this aristocratic or, or arm's length view of the crowd. And that's something that is common across many of the people in the resistance that I've met um, in, here in Australia and around the world. It certainly is common across the three of us, the Great COVID Panic author team. And, and it's something that you kind of, you know, you learn early on, I think, uh, or you just have the personality of being, I mean, I had a pretty lonely childhood, for example, or I was not part of the, the you know, the, the popular girls, you know, any of the cliques. And, and I learned very, and I was an only child. So I learned quickly that, you know, I was not going to experience whatever positive things were being experienced by those girls when they were together, but I could observe them. I could, you know, look at them as as if looking looking at a, a petri dish, you know, and try to figure out what was going on. And and my mother was a psychologist, and, and that kind of helped to tweak my interest in in you know understanding the psychology of people, particularly in groups. And that's something that I've studied uh, my whole life. And so that that kind of attitude is not it's it doesn't exist in everyone, but I've found a lot of the resistors around the world have it, and and it is something that you know, is another lesson from this period for everyone to carry forward is to, to recognize when brainwashing is happening, when the crowd has essentially taken over people's independent thinking process. So when you're in a crowd and you're not reflecting on it, you know, the fact that you're there, you can't see it yourself. What's happening is you've you've outsourced your own personal usual determination of what is true, what is right, what is good to the crowd itself. Right, just like in 1984, right? If if the leader of the, the political party says that we are now at war with Oceania, then gosh darn it, we're at war with Oceania, right? I'm not going to think about that. Right? I'm just yeah. going to take the line from that leader. And and so that's exactly what we've seen during this period. Um, even people saying at, at cocktail parties, and you ask them, well, what do you think about masks, right? And somebody, I had someone say, um, well, what do we think about that? 
which by itself tells you, what do we think about that? She's not using her mind, right? She's, she's appealing to some notion of an abstract group. So, um, so that's, that's a lesson for us going forward. And I do expect more new institutions and that it will take a very long time to redeem and, and uh, reconcile with some of the existing institutions we have that have so badly betrayed their ideals. So with that, Michael, one of the institutions that we have all been very concerned about, and that is media. And as a journalist, what are you seeing? It's, it's, it's one-way traffic as far as the media is concerned. Um, I, could, I, I would give you an, a, a developing country, an Asian perspective, specifically Asian perspective on this, which is that I mean, there's been so much self-defeating behavior in order to be part of this crowd. And as you, as you know, a lot of the uh, governments uh, around here, particularly in, in Asia and India, Indochina, uh, so we're talking about Myanmar, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam are all authoritarian governments where the media is basically a, an instrument of government power. And the, and the governments that are not outright dictatorships, kind of nominal authoritarian states, and talking about Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and these places, which are, are nominal democracies, but that's about all. It really has been one-way traffic. And uh, as far as the media is concerned, and I think particularly distressing, has been the lack of opposition from the business community, particularly professional trade associations and business leaders who are representing small businesses, uh, which are really the, the lifeblood of these economies. You, and you, kind of, you, you come to expect it, I suppose, in an authoritarian state. There's this silence. There's really no effective opposition. And I think looking, at, uh, looking from here, from this vantage point, and looking at, looking at the developed world, what has been really astounding has been the lack of effective opposition, the lack of opposing voices um, in the media and elsewhere um, against against this crowd panic. And still, um, and, and as far as institution building is concerned that uh, Gigi was just referring to, I don't see any of that happening in this part of the world anytime soon, and certainly not as a result of this. This raises a, a great point. One of the experiences we had over the last several months was the truckers in Canada. Um, it was spontaneous. It was not organized. I mean, I mean, it was organized in a, in a sense of, okay, guys, you know, let's get ready. Let's, uh, okay, we'll meet here. We'll go. Uh, but there was no like uh, big major organization here. They go to Ottawa. It is a very peaceful uh, protest. I was there for three days uh, in uh, two different weekends. Um, and the government came down hard. I mean, it came with a sledgehammer. It uh, invoked the Emergencies Act, which basically meant uh, the Trudeau was a dictator for nine days, uh, froze bank accounts. Like, in other words, what's happened is, is that the institutions of power have doubled down. And they're doubling down again, like they're still refusing to allow the unvaccinated to fly in this country. I mean, I'm just wondering, um, I, and, and I don't want to be a, a pessimist on this, but um, and, and there is a there is, I should say, as well, a growing sense, uh, uh, you know, when, when the prime minister was down in New Brunswick, as I mentioned, um, there was a great um, a sense of emotion of people cussing him uh, to such an extent. Uh, and yet, of course, the mainstream media did not report it, uh, but it, it got out on social media. 
Uh, but one wonders just like how long or what we are yet to experience, because look at what's been happening now in China and Shanghai, right? So it's like, could it actually get worse? Could it actually uh, be that our that our government authorities just double down? Um, maybe I can ask that, uh, answer that, right? I, I think first off, the truckers' protest was well followed by the coexistence in other countries. So I'm quite active in the Dutch resistance and a little bit in the UK resistance. And there we were all cheering on the truckers and thought they were doing a great job. Uh, I particularly to keep it peaceful and how people came out of their homes to feed them and to give them money and to sort of supply them with fuel to sort of circumvent the draconian restrictions put on them. Uh, and I think the experience was exactly the same uh, in Australia. And so, yeah, no, this, this kind of, you know, draconian authoritarian reaction was awful. Uh, and particularly awful was also that I knew quite a few of my Canadian academic friends were cheering on the authoritarian response, right? Uh, yeah. I think more than half the Canadians I know loved it uh, and would have liked to see the trucker shot, if at all. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yes, we are in scary times. Um, but I, I do have hope for the long-run future. And, and, and one of my main reasons for hope is that this kind of authoritarianism is extremely inefficient. I mean, it just makes you poorer and poorer and poorer. And Western populations are ultimately quite ambitious and sort of want things for themselves. So people will vote with their feet. You know, they, they will just move to other countries. Companies will move to other countries. And people just want to have a bit of fun in their life as well. So they'll go off in their to Florida elsewhere, and they won't come to Canada. Uh, and that kind of thing, you know, jealousy and inefficiency breaks it. You, you can only keep doing stupid things for so long until you run out of money, until you run out of, as it were, social capital with the rest of society, and people will then look for alternatives. And they might not build an alternative in their own society, because that's a lot of work, but they'll run to another society in which things are operating better. And then in the, in the run-down societies, they copy stuff. So, you know, in the, in the developing world, uh, they copy a lot of the institutions in the West, and they're bound to do this this time as well. You know, once a couple of Western countries work out how to undo all this uh, nonsense and, and build better and more robust institutions, the rest of the world will just copy them again. So I'm not really negative in the long run, but it can be a long slog. That's definitely the case. But to give you hope that there clearly are countries and regions which are, are operating fairly normally. I mean, Scandinavia is a very normal place. Sweden right. didn't day of school disruptions, not really. No mass to be seen in Florida and Texas. The, the ferry has been broken, as it were. Uh, and you see, as it were, an awakening in many countries. So it, it is more a question of time. So when you ask how long, well, historically speaking, this kind of madness can last for years. I mean, just think of the Nazi period, think of the First World War, think of the prohibition in the US. The, this sort of thing could be uh, a few more years. But I don't think really it will last a few more years, even in Canada, because it's just, it, it's so clearly impoverishing. Uh, and you can only keep a lid on things with power for, for so long. You know, wouldn't expect that. Maybe one, two years max in, in Canada would be my prediction. Your article, your recent article, which is um, one that really struck a chord with me as well, because just as in the stock market, and I use that as, because uh, I see it in my own life, <laughs> when things go bad, you're, you're really down, you're thinking, okay, everything's going bad, and all of a sudden things start shooting up, and things become really good. And so one of the things that... Um, I, I look at is that those people who have suffered tremendously are naturally going to want 
vengeance. It seems to me that vengeance is one of those human emotions that that come into play. And your recent article kind of touched on that and said, okay, what is it that people will not forgive? And I'm wondering if you want to open that up for us right now. And forgiveness of labor. Oh my God. Um, well, there are there are a couple of things people find hard to forgive. One is a loss of status. You know, we we are naturally prone prone to want to regain a high level of social status. So those who lose it, those people who've lost uh, CEO jobs, have gone down in the pecking order, were sort of fired uh, from the administration where they previously had a high job, and they're now fired as troublemakers. That that kind of anger burns long and hard. Uh, that 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 can go on for a decade. The, those people will still be running court cases in 10, 20 years' time against us. Um, but we also think another thing people will find hard to forgive is permanent health damage, particularly in a situation where they're going to have to pay for health and where there's uncertainty. So it's a little bit like Gulf War syndrome went on and on and on among the veterans. We think the vaccine health damage is going to creep up and up and up and up and up in the scales of what people... Uh, keep getting back to it. They'll, they'll be worried about what their kids have been injected with, what they have done to themselves, how their immune system has been affected, the growth of cancers, the enlarged hearts, the blood clots. And they'll be wondering, oh, would I have this problem with that? So those two things, loss of status amongst those who were sort of, you know, fired for no reason uh, or whose business was destroyed for no reason, which is rather a lot, and the vaccinated who suspect that they've been betrayed. So we might mention that the reason why that's Paul's question is that Paul is really the well-being researcher. Uh, mm. He's studied well-being about as much as you can study it. Uh, and, you know, human well-being, of course, as many of your listeners may not be aware, is the maximand of our discipline of economics. We actually want the most human surplus, well-being, happiness, however you like to say it, for everyone uh, that we can get out of the scarce resources that we have. And so all of economics is sort of ultimately geared towards designing institutions and setting up policy schemes and regimes such that, um, that, that, that we do, in fact, produce as much as we can that actually makes people happy and, and otherwise have societies that promote people's happiness. So uh, in that literature, which is, oh gosh, I mean, probably know how long it's been around, probably a couple of generations now, there's a lot of study of what it is actually that makes people happy and, and, and how they respond in terms of their happiness levels to various kinds of life shocks. And one of the life shocks you might imagine is most relevant during the COVID period is a death, a death of a loved one from COVID, for example. Um, but as it happens, the well-being literature shows you that that kind of shock as, as tragic and horrible as it is, and I mean, I've experienced that myself. My mother died uh, about six years ago. It does really throw you, obviously, and you have to grieve and whatnot, but you do recover your sense of well-being or happiness or life satisfaction is, is the way that it's typically measured in the most uh, most recent research that's, that's leading the charge in terms of how we should measure uh, human well-being uh, as governments. And so after a couple of years, you've sort of forgotten that. So the question really that we asked in, in our recent blog for Brownstone was, was what kind of pain is going to last long enough to kind of continue to fuel the call for maybe if not vengeance, then perhaps just a reckoning, some kind of reconciliation, some kind of a truth commission 
in different countries. Um, you know, whether here in Australia, we have the tradition of running royal commissions whenever the, the society seems to think that something is going badly enough. Um, I, I have my doubts about whether that would actually uh, result in much change um, here. But, you know, just because we've had prior royal commissions on other things like the banking industry and really nothing's budged, but it still is the traditional kind of mechanism. South Africa had a very useful, I think, um, truth commission after, you know, the apartheid phase. And, and if you set it up correctly, those kinds of things can be, um, you know, not, not as much a vengeance filled, um, hostile, violent kind of affair as a, an opportunity to simply have uh, voices aired, which have been censored or, or, you know, omitted entirely from debates previously, um, but have been truly harmed. And, and those people need to be heard, you know, in order to move together forward as a society across the aisle, including in family groups that have been split down the middle by COVID policy, right? To be able to reunite with each other locally and at the at the more regional and national levels, we need to have those conversations. And we need to, I mean, we'd like to have them in ways that don't involve violence. Um, because I agree with you that there will be some desire for blood. Uh, but so the, so the question in our article was what's going to fuel the, the call and the effort that would be needed to set up those kinds of, uh, of, of commissions, truth commissions, reconciliation, or indeed uh, the more violent options, which, uh, which of course we hope not to see, but may yeah. be in store well, in some places. I think that a lot of people are going to be extremely disappointed reading that blog piece. At least my sense from, I, I probably track social media a bit more than the other two. And my sense is uh, that over the last several months, a lot of people are very, very much hoping that there'll be a reckoning based on things like uh, loss of freedoms, censorship and all that. There's a lot of anger about that, which basically the blog piece comes over and kind of throw, puts that in the cold shower. Uh, but in fact, those are not the things that are going to be able to uh, sustain rage over the long term. So I, I think there'd be a lot of people disappointed reading that. <laughs> be, be, because they want vengeance and, and you're saying, hey, what can we do? Well, to? And they feel very, very strongly about these issues. Oh, yeah. There are lots of freedoms uh, and all of the other things that happened over the last two years in the, in the, in the course of lockdowns. I mean, it's also shocking, right? Because the, what we say in the blog is that social status loss matters. And that is not a particularly appealing thing to say about your species. You know, I mean, yeah. social status, that sounds like, oh, you're a materialist. All you care about is your status. You know, what a pig. Yeah. But but the reality for the well-being literature is that's the thing that really sticks with people, you know, and that can be extended to losing the best years of your life if you're a young person or losing yeah. your health. My my grand granddaughter, when COVID first hit and they weren't even allowed to be out on the and the playgrounds and all the rest of it. And so my uh, my daughter and her family live in Vancouver and it was like serious lockdown. And so anyhow, they went up uh, north to uh, my son-in-law's parents' house uh, in Northern BC. And they, as they drove into the little town, uh, my granddaughter saw another park and it had no yellow tape. And she said, oh, look, there's a there's a park you know and then uh my daughter had to say to her i'm sorry honey but you're not going to be able to go on that one either and then she says well this is the worst this is the worst year of my entire life <laughs> and you know it's like it is and and i know of individuals local businesses not too far from our house here a man who who put everything into his business, he put up the pexi glass, he put up everything, and still they had another 
lockdown. And uh, unfortunately, um, he decided to end his life. And, and, and it's those kinds of stories and the extreme amount of pain that uh, people have been going through that it seems to me for us to be able to get past this, we, we got to have, first of all, a recognition that something, it, it, what we did was wrong. So there has to be official recognition of, you know what, we goofed up here. And number two, we need to listen to the people who have suffered. And I think that having them being able to, like the, you mentioned the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it, you know, having the ability to be able to share their pain brings about a lot of healing. And it seems right now, at least in this country, we're nowhere near of mm -hmm. having uh, any official say, you know what, uh, we goofed up, uh, this was wrong. So it's going to take some time yet it seems, for the evidence to come out and for more and more brave experts who many, many people I have talked to over the last while, individuals who have studied all of the medical uh, epidemiology into the, the um, biology, into all the, all the uh, even those who are been studying uh, vaccines and so forth, have lost their jobs. <clears throat> just been kicked out of the universities. And, but like you say, there is this networking going on. And that was one of the things that I saw when I was up in Ottawa during the trucker protests was the fact that there were a lot of people, mind you, it was bitterly cold. I mean, one of the things that, that I think frightened uh, the federal government was that we had massive protest in Ottawa in late January, early February. We're talking minus 25 degrees Celsius, wind chill minus 30. It was bitter, bitter cold. And yet the first weekend, they estimate somewhere around 100,000 people just crammed in around Parliament Hill. I mean, it's just like, this is unheard of. It, I, I don't think we've ever had anything like this at that time of year. I mean, Coming up in May, that's when you begin protesting in, in Ottawa, but not in January. And so that kind of shows you the, the, the angst that has been going on in the population. And it seems to me that we have to get to the place where officialdom have to recognize that, you know what, we've goofed up. And um, that's probably going to take some, some time, like you say. And so how do, how do, we, how do we get... Uh, the official narrative changed. Well, here in Australia, we have an election coming up in uh, in May, about a month from now, and uh, and I've seen even before the election that in some of the the states, there's been a, a changing of the guard, kind of quietly. So the person who was in charge here uh, in, in New South Wales for most of the period of of COVID. Gladys Berejiklian was um, was ousted due to a supposed corruption charge or something, and a new guy took over, and it was much easier for him to simply chart a slightly new path, right? Politically, it was much easier for him. And so one of the hopes for Australia's elections coming up is that uh, there is a message sent to the large parties, all of which have basically been complicit in the crimes of, of the COVID period. Um, so over here, our big parties are Labour and Liberal, uh, and they also have the slightly less big parties, the Nationals and the Greens, who uh, support the, the, the ones that are on their side of politics when they get in power. But we have an enormous number now of these freedom-friendly minor parties, we call them, 
which, you know, range in their views on other things from, you know, gay rights to abortion to gun rights to whatever else, but on COVID issues and generally on freedom um, to move around and to, you know, to go to work and to go to study, they're pretty much united that we did the wrong thing and, and whatnot. So I think one obvious way is to simply change the guard. So I don't see Justin Trudeau anytime in his lifetime unless he is forced by the institutions of power, the legal system, whatnot. Uh, admitting that he's messed up, right? It will have to be somebody else. And so the question is just how you get there. And and I don't know enough about the Canadian political system to know uh, what's most feasible, but certainly here in Australia, it's trying with those minor parties. We have a preferential voting system, which means that there actually is more of a possibility of getting some of those people from those parties or the independents into positions from which they can then argue a little bit uh, their case and therefore shift the, the debate slightly. Maybe I can also add to that, Barry, that as it were, expecting official apologies is, I think, unlikely to happen in most countries. And, and it's for a good reason, which is that there's enormous liability hanging on whether or not there'll be apologies. Right? Just, just, I mean, just think of the damage that they've done, you know, ruining a whole cohort of children for two years. Well, just think of what's that worth in terms of lifetime incomes, and that for a whole population. Ka-ching! Think of the damage done to health and disrupted health. Everybody who's lost a loved one, but also who had to pay for their own health or who has to pay now for new operations. Just think of the medical malpractices that could follow from an official apology. Ka-ching. So there's just enormous commercial interest riding on not admitting any mistake. Mm -hmm. And so in that kind of situation, what tends to happen is, as Shiji says, is a kind of a fading out of the old narrative. And a new thing coming with, you know, a new obsession. It could be Ukraine or it could be, uh, you know, climate change or it could be something else to distract the population. But not as it were openly saying, oh, we, this identifiable group who you could take to court is now admitting that it's done wrong in this enormous way. But we'll take near a revolution. And don't, don't kid yourself, that near revolution will be bloody in other ways as well, because if you would have the power to force politicians into an apology, you have an awful lot of power, and you won't just stop with an apology. Right? We're, we are then talking about a very scary situation in which that's even conceivable. Right. I mean, the last time that happened was in Germany, when the Nazis were just rounded up by the Americans. Uh, and unless somebody rounds them up, it just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, I guess the stakes are extremely high, aren't they, as a result of this experience? And hopefully we can uh, we can learn from it. Uh, that's the uh, positive news I hear from from you is with respect to this. I I'm concerned that we may go through a very tumultuous time yet, because uh, like you say, right now Ukraine is the big big story. However lurking up behind is the idea we're all going to die uh, because we drive our cars um, is is the next one that I'm I'm sensing the prime minister here uh, in this country have just raised our gas taxes again uh, we're now at a dollar 88 in Toronto for uh, per liter for gasoline but but he's now going to be doing it right up until 2030 every year there's going to be an additional tax it's like this has got to happen right away. You know, everyone needs to be driving uh, electric cars, all the rest of it. 
And so it's kind of like, okay, now we're into a new phase now, or a new panic of things. And if we don't have that cost benefit analysis from experts like yourselves, we're going to be into another crazy moment, it seems to me. I want to thank you all so very much for your time. I um, is, is there any final word that you would like to share with our listeners as we look forward to the future, as we, as we brave this new world or we go into this brave new world? The thing I would share is just um, that they are not alone. Um, there have been so many people mm. who have come to me out of you know, the woodwork over this period saying, oh, thank goodness, I finally read something sane, or, you know, I finally found someone who's saying something. And, and it's not just us, right? There, there is a very robust and rapidly growing resistance um, around the world. And so not to despair and, and mm -hmm. to, to recognize at the same time, we are in this for the long haul. Um, and honestly, what we need as a society, and I suppose I come from a place of, of compassion and, and love, and I'm very, I don't like violence. And I, I know that uh, Paul will probably disagree with me about this, but I feel that the most effective means of, of at the local level of trying to work with people is to try to understand what makes them take the positions they're taking. So understand the crowd dynamic, understand when somebody has been brainwashed and try to, to help them uh, when possible to, to confront some of their beliefs. And, and, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult. You know, you'll get abuse, you'll get, you know, name called and all sorts of stuff, but to keep simply and rationally and sanely and compassionately stating your case, um, we need people speaking out like that because that's what the good person does in the face of something that's not good. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's what evil triumphs if the good don't speak out. So, you must, uh, you know, as, as a, I, I feel it as a duty almost to our social health and our children's future to continue to state as much as you can your version of reality and, and, and have that be part mm -hmm. of the chorus of voices that are being heard so that at least there's something to counteract the, the, the gargantuan monovision and, and, you know, mono message of the media and government and the crowd. I also have a couple of messages. One is that a lot of resistance can just be local, right? Setting up your own school together with other moms and dads uh, or caring partners. Um, also setting up, you know, local as it were, health delivery platforms, right? To sort of bypass uh, the official structures that are no longer working. Set up local reading groups, right? Uh, set up local dating groups, right? I think that there can be a huge blossoming of civil society married with there's lots of social production. Um, and that leads to the second thing, that is this, this coviscent stuff can be fun. And one of the surprising things for me has been that it, it's actually an incredibly tolerant place. Right? Uh, we, we have now found ourselves on the same side of people we wouldn't have wanted to be with three years ago. And I've, and I've found that, that, you know, it, they're not as crazy as they seemed, right? We <laughs> say, <laughs> over 50 years ago, and instead of immediately running away, I sort of go, oh, really? And, you know, I let it slide, right? <laughs> that sort of thing, right? And that is the joy as well, right? The, the, yeah. the have a tolerance within because... We're such a huge common enemy. Who cares that you don't agree with somebody on everything, right? Right, right. Mm. I, I did just like to point out on uh, when I was in Ottawa and I was, and again, you know, crowd dynamics again. And I was thinking about that, like I'm in another crowd, but I'm in a crowd that 
think the same way as I do on this issue. And I I remember thinking, man, this feels good, <laughs> you know, just to have everyone around me who are not thinking that I'm crazy. Um, and and there was just this this absolute exuberance of joy mm -hmm. finding people of like mind. Uh, people from Quebec, you know, who could hardly speak English. Um, and yet we were communicating and having a great time together with my little wee bit of French that I know. Uh, but, you know, it was just, it was a, a wonderful experience. And so there's that dynamic as well. Sorry, Michael. Gigi and Paul have given us a very uplifting, uplifting way to end, I think. Uh, we're still really very much picking up the pieces here in this part of the world. Uh, mm. We don't really know uh, some of these things. Some of these uh, uh, measures have kind of taken on a life of their own, and I don't know anymore whether they are government mandates or whether they are things that company businesses and individuals have just taken on and they're just doing it out of habit. So I suppose all of that will kind of dissolve very slowly over the next few months. And people are just looking forward, overjoyed to be, as you just said, getting back together again um, and being with other like-minded people and doing the things that they did before. Um, and of course, the, the downside of that uh, is that those, what, what has happened, uh, be, they'll be very, very slow to, uh, to, to, to grasp that, to remember that they will, they will not remember that so easily, um, which is the downside. But I think the return, the return to normality or relative normality um, is is a really wonderful thing that's going on at the moment. And let's, let's hope it continues. Well, folks, I want to thank you so very much for uh, being with us today. And uh, this is the first for me, uh, literally having a world conversation. And for those of you who have been watching, hope you've enjoyed our time together here on Freedom Feature. Uh, we make it a policy that we want open, fair, and honest conversations. And that means there may be some uh, conversations we have that you may not agree with. You may not agree with our guests. You may not agree with me. But that's okay because that's why we're here. We're wanting to open our minds to what's happening around us and especially what we've been experiencing over the last two years. So thank you. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca